All right, friends. We are getting back to Judges this evening. So please open up to the 16th chapter of that book, Judges chapter 16. We're really only doing three verses. Really, really. I know. It's a long time. I'm going to take the, all the time that the Lord needs me to take. It, um, it's been a while since we haven't done many verses, so I was kind of grateful for how this worked out. We're confronted, though, with an important topic tonight, a timeless topic while we live in this present evil age. Uh, tonight, the word of the Lord brings us to look at sin, to look at sin's consequence, and then to look at God's mercy in light of it, the, the almighty God and his mercy in light of our sin. So let's read our text and then pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Again, just these three verses. So the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 in Judges 16, reads, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The, Ga- the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of morning, and then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, our Father who is in heaven, we thank you for this time to meet tonight, and we pray that you would give us guidance and understanding that, Holy Spirit, you would apply your word to our lives, and that you would glorify Christ through it tonight. Help us, Lord. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, just a short passage tonight, and a pretty easy outline is contained in it, actually. First, we're met with Samson's sin. Okay, and then after that, we have we see that Samson is trapped, and then after that, we see Samson's rescue. So Samson's sin, Samson's trapped, and then Samson's rescue or Samson's escape. You had a question, Adam? Yeah, I was going to ask, why is it called a rescue if he did it himself, but then you said escape? Well, we'll, we'll get to why it would also be a rescue as well <laughs> in, in a moment. Um so, and we need to remember what's going on here in the larger context. We're continuing on with the deliverance of that God is providing for Israel during this time period with the continuation of the faithfulness of Yahweh because of the promises given in the covenant of grace, which these promises at this point in time for the nation of Israel, for the people that are seeking God and the people that God is in, in a true sense, blessing even, those promises of the covenant of grace, they're veiled. They're contained in shadows and types. Uh, they're, they're, they're seen through things like the offerings in the temple, you know, pointing forward to Christ and what he would do, things like that. And if you remember, Israel is in what we would call now the old covenant, but they're living in gross sin, unrepentant sin. And Samson is a fitting representative of Israel at this point. Uh, he is a man who knows the Lord, who's chosen by the Lord, and I think we can even say saved by the Lord, but his choices are like that of the nation that he is part of. And of course, not everyone in the nation is like that, right? It would seem like though the majority of the nation of Israel 
at this point aren't saved. Uh, the majority of these this chosen people aren't pursuing the Lord. They're not doing works of repentance. They're not bearing good fruit. Uh, they are living just like the world around them. And not all of Israel is Israel, as the Apostle Paul would put it in the New Testament. And so one of the things that we need to remember in this time period of the judges is that God accomplishes his purposes often through means which people may find surprising and even unlikely. All of that then would point us to the, to the narrative of the passion in which the, the Son of God is incarnated. He is true God and true man. The eternal Son of God takes on flesh. And he's in one person, the God-man. And he's perfectly holy and he's sinless. And then he would go to the cross to die. And by his death, he defeats death. And then being raised on the third day, he accomplishes you know, salvation for all who would trust in him, all who were chosen in him from before the foundation of the world. And no person, no human being would devise such a plan. This is the plan of God. And even for people who should have sought coming when Jesus did those things, when God did those things to accomplish salvation for the elect, even the people who should have sought coming, they were surprised by it. Remember how the apostles acted after Jesus went to the cross? They all hid, right? They scattered. The sheep were scattered. And then they even locked themselves in a room because they were fearful that the same fate that befell Jesus would befall them as well too. And certainly it did, but not just then. I remember Jesus entered into their locked room through the door like in, he was in his glorified state after the resurrection. And he entered into this locked room where they were hiding out. And so they would suffer the same fate as Jesus. Many of those early disciples would die a, a death um, for their faith in Christ. But it wasn't then. They weren't ready at that point. God would make them ready. And God prepared them for it and sanctified them for it. But God does things in a very unlikely and often surprising way. And so we sit in a very privileged position in one sense because we're able to look back upon all of these things with more revelation from God. We have a completed Bible. I said a moment ago that, you know, Samson is saved. We should think Samson is saved. And we think that primarily not because of the actions that he did, because some of the things we've been reading about, man, man this, is, this is not the way a believer lives. But he's listed in that so-called hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You know, a benefit that the apostles themselves didn't have at the time of the crucifixion. So we're very blessed to have this word of God, friends. And so we shouldn't neglect it. We mustn't neglect it. We sh why would we neglect such a good opportunity to know God's will, to know his plans? We should take up and read God's word with a great consistency. It's, it's a benefit for us to do so. So, and, you know, and come to things like this and so, and on Wednesday evenings and Sunday mornings when you can to have the word opened up to you and, and preached so that you might receive it. So let's consider what's going on in our passage. Uh, first, as I was saying, we see Samson's sin. Verse 1. Samson travels to Gaza, and there he sees a prostitute, and he goes into her. Now, most scholars wonder why this section is even here. Uh, because this is like a little parenthesis in the story of Samson, right? Uh, right after this, beginning at verse 4, is when we have perhaps his most famous story, the, the, when he meets Delilah. And finally, you know, we get to know the name of a woman in Samson's life. But I think that's part of the point here. Here's another unnamed woman that he's introduced to. Samson is just this guy, though 
chosen by the Lord to do this work. He is this guy, this man who lives by sight and not by faith. And it's ironic, isn't it? I mean, because you would expect of all people so far that we've been introduced to, even maybe, you know, especially in the book of Judges, if we would expect somebody to be living a holy and a sanctified life, it would be Samson. Who else has a story quite like Samson's? He was sanctified. He was set apart in his mother's womb. Even before he was born, he was set apart to do a work for the Lord. He was going to be a Nazarite unto the Lord. He was set to be holy and special, even at that part. Manoah, his dad and his mom, his mom, we never learned her name. They were visited by the angel of the Lord, and they know what God's plan is to do with Samson, to begin to save Israel from the Philistines. And it, and he grew up under this special calling. But then it just seems like as soon as he became of age to do what the saving that God had intended to do, he just totally blows it. He just totally tries to get like as close to the edge of being rejected by God as he can. It's like he enjoys dancing on the edge, seeing what will happen if he goes over. Will he lose his calling? Will he lose his ministry? Will he lose his life? And this little snippet of a story is like the beginning of the end for Samson. He's going to get to a point where he crosses that line and he can't return from it, not with his own life here on the earth at least. And so he keeps pursuing these women that he has no business pursuing. He keeps getting involved with women who are not seeking and not looking to glorify the Lord in their obedience. These Philistine women. And so he first gets himself in trouble by doing what is right in his own eyes. He sees a Philistine woman and he, he marries her against his parents' wishes. He marries her against the revealed will of God, right? Because God's will for the nation of Israel was to not be unequally yoked with people in that are surrounding nations, people who weren't going to be in covenant with Yahweh. He violates the law of God. And of course, we read it already, it ends in disaster from a human point of view. But it turns out to be the means that God uses to start bringing those like those seeds of division in between Israel and the Philistines. So even though even though um, Samson does what he wants to do, it all happens according to the eternal decree of God. So in a sense, it's God's will that this happened this way so that he could bring about this good and this glory unto his name, even though this was Samson's sin and he was in sin for doing it. And now, once again, Samson's sight is going to find him in trouble some more. But we have to ask the question even before that, like, what is he doing in Gaza? That's T Timna, where he met his wife. That was only four miles from where he lived. Gaza is a few days' journey away. It's not close. Timna was a little village. Gaza is this massive city. It's actually one of the five main Philistine cities that at that time. It's a stronghold. It's like a dark stain on the promised land. And we simply read that Samson goes to Gaza, but we don't, we're not told why. We're not given any insight as to what is he's doing down there. Why would he go to this place where there's all this rebellion? He felt like it. Yeah, that, that's got to be it. Well, unless, of course, you know, we assume he went there to maybe simply dance on that edge a little bit more. Did he go there with the intent, with the, the purpose to find a prostitute? Some commentaries try to, like, paint this in a really positive light, actually, at this point. They say things like Samson had to travel this far to find a prostitute because there were none in the land of Israel. Uh, because, you know, 
because they're so holy, so set apart. But it's yeah. Well, this is Philistines here. But even the nation of Israel, they were living just like the world. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see many times in which in which the Israelites there are you know prostitutes among them. A pretty regular thing. There are a prostitute, of course, is a person who's engaged in porneia, in sexual immorality for money or possessions. And so it's just silly, I think, to say that. Oh well, he had to go all the way to Gaza to find a prostitute. Um, God's people, Israel, that is, at this point, aren't seeking the Lord faithfully in this time. But again, Samson seems to enjoy pushing the edge of the envelope. He seems to enjoy seeing what he can get away with, with this calling that he has from the Lord. And what we learn in this is that Samson has a very clear weakness. Samson, the strong man, has a very clear weakness. And it's very ironic, right? Because, he, again, he's literally like the strongest man physically ever that has ever lived. Physically, he's a beast. Spiritually, he turns out to be a little mouse. He's a baby. He's an infant uh, when it comes to faith and faithfulness. And so he, he runs to sin. He sprints towards sin, as it were. And if it wasn't for the gift of supernatural strength, it would have already meant the death of him, even by this point. Because sin always leads to death as well. And I hope you you realize that, my friends. That sin always leads to death. You you may be blinded to it. Temptation has temptation has a way of doing that to us. Physical strength has a way of doing that to us. For the youth. Uh, youth, young people are often vibrant, you're strong, you're healthy, and so death really isn't in many of your thoughts. You don't consider it much. You don't consider the effects of sin much, the consequences of sin much as a young person. And that's a huge mistake to do that. Just think of our text even. Here in the first part, we have Samson. We have Samson's sin. The second point of the outline is Samson trapped. Sin leaves you trapped. It keeps you in chains. You know how bad uh, Samson has been each time that he's been in trouble. It's because he's been led astray by his eyes. The implication is that he wouldn't have found himself in the situation he, he finds himself in if he was more faithful with his eyes. If he was like Job who said, I made a you know, covenant with my eyes to not look upon you know, any immoral thing. That's ironic. Why is that? Because of, because of Samson, you mean? Well, we'll get to that, I guess, next week or a couple weeks. Uh, the Proverbs get exactly at this point as well. Uh, look, let's look at chapter 6 in Proverbs, okay? So a few chapters over. Towards the end of Proverbs chapter 6, uh, there is wisdom being given about sexual immorality, uh, both prostitution and adultery are addressed here in Proverbs chapter 6. And so let me read, beginning at verse uh, 26, actually no, 20, verse 20. It says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. 
Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. So, there are a few things going on here. Uh, sexual immorality is cheap, and by the way, it's not just saying that like only men need to be aware of this. This is an issue for women as well, too. Uh, gratifying the flesh from a monetary standpoint isn't going to cost you very much. As a matter of fact, um, that's what he says. You know, prostitute is cost you the loaf of a loaf of bread. It's not very much. But even worse than that for us, and we all have these cell phones with us now, and all you need is access to the internet, and you can quite easily be guilty of immorality without having to actually even pay for it, even. And you think that engaging in immorality will satisfy you, but the reality is is it will never satisfy you. You always end up needing more. You always end up needing more because what you're doing is replacing devotion to God, which will satisfy, which, which God is a source of joy and hope and peace and love that you will be satisfied in if you pursue God. And you pursue something instead that leads to death, that is empty, that will never satisfy you. And so you just go down this hole in it. Proverbs 27.20 says Sheol and Abaddon, in other words, the grave, death. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Well, that's true of Samson, isn't it? We've seen that. His weakness is seeing women that he's attracted to and then acting upon that attraction with immorality. And death continues to swallow up, continues to eat up. It is voracious. It will eat you up, it will consume you fully, and you'll be left for eternal fire at the end of the age if you continue to pursue it. But what does Proverbs 6 also tell us that is preventative for the one who already knows the Lord? And listen, um, everybody will have to deal with temptation, right? It's not just like a Christian thing. There's not a single one of us in this room that will never be tempted by sin. We are all fallen in Adam. We all have a nature that is marred because of the original sin in the garden. We all sin because we are sinners. We all are led away by temptation because we desire wrong things, common thing to man. No one could ever say, well, you just don't know what it's like to be me. You just don't know my personal struggles. You don't know what it's like. We all have to deal with the pull of temptation. There's, there is no temptation that is unique. Everyone deals with different kinds of temptations upon them. Even Jesus himself, our Lord, he was tempted. He Yet he was without sin, and because that's the case, we can with confidence know that he can help us when we are being tempted. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, I believe. And in fact, that's what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 goes on to say. That God will provide a way out for his children with temptation. He gives us a way of escape, should we by grace take it. And that's why we remember that verse, because of the, the hope that it instills in us when it comes to temptations as we all face it. But what does verse 12 say? You know, you would do just as well to commit that verse to memory as you would to commit verse 13. Verse 12 says, take heed lest you fall. Uh, he say, it says, if anyone thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he falls. In other words, be humble. 
Don't run headlong into sin. Don't sprint to sin as if you have the strength in yourself to not sin. Don't try to get right up to that line and then see if you could just not go over it. Try not to put yourself in a position even where you would be tempted. That's the wise thing to do. But Samson, you know, he likes to flirt with this line. And if we're going to glorify God in obedience, we cannot be like that. So what does Proverbs 6 instruct us in order to do, in order so that we might prevent temptation or that we might be ready to resist it when it comes before us? Look back at it. My son, keep your father's commandment. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Verse 20, memorize them, in other words. Meditate upon them. What, what does every good Israelite family instructed to do with their children? What are they supposed to do? To train them, yes, to train them up in the way that they should go. The Shema, the Lord your God is one. They're to teach them these things, to talk about them when they lay down, when they rise up. Deuteronomy 6 is instructive for us as well as it was for them. Uh, you, you, you think that, you know, every, every month we have a memory verse. You think that I assign that verse out just so that it'll take up your time? Do you think that's why I, I put those out to you? You think Pastor Paul sits at home and he says, oh, well, you know what? These kids have too much free time. I'm just going to give them a verse to work on because I want to see because, yeah, I think that's the important thing for you to do is to, to use your time for that. Well, it, it's good to use your time in a way that pleases and honors the Lord, but, but no, that's not the reason why I do that. It's because of what verse 22 says, because when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you, the commandment, the word. You think that you're safe from sin when you lie down at night? Do you think that only when you're up and awake in the daytime, when you're walking around, when you're busy, is that when you're tempted to sin? No, not at all. You need the Lord just as much as you do in the daytime to help you to resist sin just as much as you do at the nighttime when you're all by yourself, lying down by yourself with your head on your pillow. You need the word of the Lord then too because verse 23, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. They correct us. They preserve us. Verse 24, for the person who is united to Christ by faith, for the person who has a true desire to glorify the Lord and love him and knows his forgiveness, the law, the commandment, it serves us as a guide as to what is pleasing to the Lord. It's what we call the third use of the law. We've talked about that before, right? You remember that. Okay, but if there is a third use of the law, that means there's two other uses, correct? And so you first have what the Reformed called the first use of the law. That's when the law comes to a person who's not a believer and then it directs them to Christ because what happens is they see their sin. They see that they can't live up to the standard of holiness of who God is. And then that law of God serves as a schoolmaster, serves as a tutor to drive people to the Lord for mercy and grace and forgiveness. You see your sin in light of the law, and then in that you are understanding that is in agreement with God. Then you know that you've offended the Lord, and, and you're not right with the Lord. 
And so in that sense, the first use of the law, it drives you then to Christ. It drives you to one who can reconcile you to God. The second use of the law is that it restrains evil in the world. Again, the light of nature on our conscience in man. Why do even people who aren't Christian, why don't they just steal from everybody? Why don't they just go into stores and just take TVs and take whatever they want? It's because they know there's consequence for it. They have a conscience, even though they should. I mean, technically, if they want to live by what their worldview is. But then the third use of the law is that it helps those who know the Lord, who love the Lord, know what the Lord likes, know what the Lord demands, know what the Lord requires. And so the third use of the law is what helps us to know how we should live so that we might live in a way that's pleasing to God. It's why we should know the words, why we should know the commandment. I mean, think of Joseph, right? The son of Jacob and Rachel. When an adulterous woman approached him, when sexual immorality was before him, he considered it a sin against God to act upon it. The command, he could have probably done it. He, the, the text tells he was a handsome, attractive young man. He had, he was the second most powerful person in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's out doing work. He, he could have probably done whatever he wanted with Potiphar's wife and then lived in secret about it. But he feared the Lord. And so he literally, <laughs> fleed from sexual immorality. He literally ran, which is the instruction that Paul gives people in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, when he says, flee sexual immorality for every other sin is um, outside of your body, but sexual immorality is against your body. And your body is, is, if you're a Christian, is part of the temple of the Lord. But look what happens when you give in to sin. Look what happens when you give in to immorality. Let's keep reading in Proverbs 6, verse 27 and 28. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched it's inevitable maybe you don't get caught right away maybe the snare of sin just just misses you this time but certainly at some point god and god sees it all even valerie's comment like Maybe Samson's just going away because he doesn't want to get caught in his sin by other Israelites, by people who knows he's in this vow. But God sees. God sees everything. And eventually sin will catch up to you. It's common these days to actually hear of ministers, of pastors, of preachers who fall into sexual immorality, who commit moral failure. And I would be shocked to learn if any of those cases, if it was like a one-time thing that just came out of nowhere. That's not how it happens. It, what happens is that people indulge their sins. They're, they're walking on those hot coals, as Proverbs 26 puts it. And eventually, you know, at first, maybe you don't feel the sting. But eventually, the more time that you've put your feet on these coals, you feel it. At some point, it'll find you out. Eventually, it catches up to people. If you carry fire next to your chest, you will burn your clothes. And so sin leads to a trap and you'll be stuck. So heed the warnings that God gives you, friends. I turn from your sins. That's the offer right now even. If, there, if you are thinking right now even that there is sin in my life that I have been indulging, right now is the time to repent and turn and, and to ask for mercy and forgiveness for those sins. Look to the word of God for instruction because temptation will lead to sin and sin will trap you. Maybe not every time, but eventually. Now, don't presume the mercy of God. 
I mean, there is temptation for all kinds of things. There's temptation to show off while you drive. And if you do that, for example, I think you're on the danger of getting into an accident, of hurting yourself or maybe hurting someone else. You can get a ticket and even lose your car. There's there's a temptation to sexual sin like we are reading about here. There's a danger of pregnancy, of venereal diseases. You could find yourself in the position of even considering an abortion. I mean, you realize, right, that there are people who profess to be Christian who end up getting abortions. It's not how it should be. A Christian has no business with getting an abortion. A Christian should be working to prevent abortion. But nevertheless, professing Christians have found themselves there. And how horrible is that? How backwards is that? But sin leads to these traps. Now, there's temptation to be liked by everyone, and that comes with the danger of you know, doctrinal compromise. You know, If you're going to want to go around and tell people that God is sovereign and he saves whom he wants to save, there are going to be some Christians who are not going to like you. And they just need to, I would say, they need to grow in their faith and understand what the Bible says. But you know, do you compromise at that time because you have this temptation to be liked by everyone? Or what if you're in the world with people who aren't saved? Uh, the temptation to be liked by everyone will cause you to compromise your character, cause you to do things that to fit in with people who don't even like the Lord just because you want to be liked by them. There's a temptation to have what we want right now, you know, the danger of going into debt and being unable to pay. It's coveting that puts you into a position of, of needing help rather than being able to help others. So there's all sorts of ways when temptation leads to sin and sin leaves you trapped. And so when temptation comes, turn from it, friends. Look to Christ. Sin will never satisfy you. It will only ever compel you to continue in sin. It will eventually trap you. And don't don't play with fire. And remember how it hits Samson. It's our second point. Samson's trapped. So it's Judges 16, too. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. They surround the place and set an ambush for him all night at the, city, at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the morning, or to the light of morning, and then we will kill him. So Samson, the enemy of the Philistines, is about to get his, or so the Philistines think at least. Now you can tell there is kind of like a respect for him though, right? A, a fear of him, I guess you could say. Like, why not just rush in there right away and take him? Yeah, or if he's like, if he's naked or something, right? Like, yeah, I mean, you you would think there's a fear. Well, maybe they think he's gonna stumble out of the house in the morning all groggy or something, and they're gonna ambush him. I don't know. These are wicked men. They fit the bill of Proverbs one eleven or one ten through eleven. It says, "My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us. Let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason." Now, Samson isn't exactly innocent, right? But in our last encounter with him, he felt justified for the things that he did. He felt like he was in the right for killing all those Philistines. And certainly, God didn't want there to be fellowship between these people groups at this time. Uh, the Philistines weren't willing to enter into covenant with God. And so God's wrath was upon them. But because Samson sinned, he's fallen into this trap. If Samson hadn't went to Gaza, if he even went to Gaza and he didn't do what he did, then they wouldn't have known, they wouldn't be setting this trap for him. But God is merciful to Samson, and his plan is to use Samson to begin to save Israel from the Philistines, as you remember. And so we read of our third point, Samson's escape. Verse 3, But Samson lay till midnight, 
And at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and he put them on his shoulders, and he carried them to the top of the hill that is in the front of Hebron. So again, we're lacking details, huh? Like, why does Samson get up at midnight? Does he somehow get word that these people are coming, that these people are waiting outside and lying and waiting for him? It's kind of weird even to me that the Philistines, again, would even think to wait to the morning because, I mean, for one, maybe, maybe that's just how prostitutes operated back in that time. But in our day, with the sexual abuse that is common today, a man would hardly ever stay the night with a prostitute. Uh, you know, it's a horrible situation for women. Even they just get used and then tossed aside. And the man who engages in such things is a monster quite often himself, but this stuff is all confusing. It's not part of the details that we need to know at this point is what we should gather from that. It's not what we are instructed, being instructed to know. Uh, perhaps Samson has a friend in Gaza who informed him. Maybe it was the spirit rushing upon him to tell him about this. Who knows? Maybe he was just leaving because he's convicted of his sin. I don't know. We're not giving details. <laughs> He's not you, Valerie. He's not you, all right? He's <laughs> he, Samson is a young man. He doesn't have any prostate issues. It's not, not his thing. So what we see at this point, though, is a stark contrast between Samson's strength and his weakness. His weakness, his propensity to do what is right in his own eyes, his temptation to be led astray by his eyes is in stark contrast with his physical strength. But now, how better off would he be if his faith was strong, he wouldn't even be in the situation. Thankfully for Samson, though, and according to God's plan of deliverance here, God is strong. He is mighty to save. And certainly this display of Samson's strength here is from the Lord. Why would I say that Samson is actually rescued here? Because there's no way that Samson could do this in his own power, in his own strength. Now, granted, and interestingly, we don't read of the Spirit rushing on him to do this like we have in previous things. It just doesn't say that. But I think the, the assumption is we have to think that that's the case as to what's happening. This is clearly the work of the Spirit. You see the gate that he picks up. It's not like that gate that we have over there by the offices that you guys always take that metal stick out of and play with. It's not like that kind of a gate, this little gate. Uh, this is one of the five main or the great cities of the Philistines. And archaeologists have discovered that what these gates are like. And so this is some superhuman type of effort that Samson puts forth at this point. Even though we don't read of the spirit rushing upon him to accomplish this, it has to be the case because this isn't the sort of a task a normal man could accomplish. These gates would be made out of cedar, so a really thick, heavy wood, and then most likely overlaid and fortified with bronze. And so that was, that was for extra strength for the gate and then also for decoration as well. And the height of these gates would be anywhere from like 10 feet at the smallest to upwards of even 30 feet. And so depending on the exact height and the exact amount of bronze on the gates, we're looking at somewhere between 8,000 to 20,000 pounds. So I'm trying to think of like what, what do we have around here that could be that, that heavy? That's like, Six or less like eight cars that he's picking up. Yeah. It also says that the posts that like hold up the gate like go into the ground really deep. Yeah. So he just and he just yanks them up, right? Yanks them right up out the ground, and then on top of it, it's not like he takes these super heavy gates and these posts and then just throws them down. He takes them and he walks to a hill outside Hebron. A couple of things that make that even more amazing. 
from Gaza to Hebron, there's an elevation climb of 3,000 feet. So imagine like, I have no idea. I'm not some sort of archaeologist or geologist. I don't. Yes, Clint, you work for the, for the government. How high are you a land advisor? That's not, that's like 30 feet, 40 feet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, so it gives the visual, but it's not only is it 3,000 feet higher elevation, but it's also 37 miles away. It's 37 miles that he walks with these massive gates to put them down. And so this is a work of the Lord. To seize the gates of a city in ancient times was the same as having victory over an enemy. To glorify the Lord. To glorify the Lord. You remember the scene? And, well, that's why God does it, right? Because this is God's working through him. You remember the scene in uh, Lord of the Rings, the two towers, where the orcs blow up the gates in Minas Tirith? And then even though there's all the main heroes are on the inside of it, they're about to be overtaken and consumed because the gate was lost. And if it wasn't for Theoden coming, they would have been totally overran and, and all killed. The, the gates are that important. It, when you lose the gate, you guys need to watch Lord of the Rings movies. Otherwise, you won't... Watch the, they, spoiler alert. (laughs) These movies are very old. You should read the book as well. They will help you in life. But anyways, if you, but you know, if you remember the movie, I mean, once the orcs got through, it was like they had lost. And so in ancient times, what you, when the, when the gates were seized, what you ha- uh, have is like a declaration of victory. And so in this act, we had, we see a declaration of Yahweh's victory over his enemies. And it's continuing right now, even. It's going to look like failure in chapter 16. But then again, there's a surprising win at the end at, in a very unlikely manner. But even now, here with this miracle that Samson performs, we're being directed to Christ. Because listen, Samson's sin has got him into this mess. But the only way he can escape from the consequences of his sin is through the mighty work of Christ on our behalf. As it were, every person who trusts Christ was at one point, by nature, a child of wrath, Ephesians 2. We were walled in. There are gates that are locked that we can't open and get out. The gates are too heavy for us to open, all thanks to Adam's sin in the garden. And then plus our own sins act like chains that chain us to the ground. We're in a worse condition now than even when we were we were born into the world. But for those people who are chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, those people who seek forgiveness and truly believe the gospel and trust in Christ Jesus and his work of atonement, he breaks down those walls. He throws down those gates through his atonement. He loosens those chains. And when we receive Christ by faith, We are set free from the prison of sin. You see, we all need rescue, and there's only one man who can do it. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ. Samson, he's not a perfect savior. His life is a mess. He needs to be rescued at this point. Now, granted, the rescuing is done of him, through him, by the power of God. But when Christ did what was necessary to rescue his people, he didn't need anyone to rescue him. Remember, his work of atonement is twofold. Yes, He did the miraculous feat of strength in going to the cross. And there he endured the wrath of the triune God upon himself. And then he died. 
and death couldn't hold him. He was too powerful for that. He was too strong for death to hold him. He's too mighty. But even more, the second, or I guess really the first act of atonement, is that he lived a faithful life. Samson isn't even close to that. Jesus, though, he lived without sin so that when we receive him by faith, we can have his righteousness. It's His righteousness is perfect. There's no flaw in it at all. You see, it'd be one thing if Jesus just died for us. If Jesus just died for us, that would leave us as a blank slate. And when we received him, we would be like Adam was in the garden, the ability to sin. And then once we sinned, which we would, we'd be right stuck back in that trap of sin and in death. But Jesus lived for us as well as died for us so we could have his righteousness. We were made perfect in him. His work of rescue is twofold, his atonement. He gives us his righteous life, and he pays the penalty of our sins. And that's the rescue that we need. Samson himself needed that rescuing, as well as the one that he received here. But Samson's story isn't done, and there's going to be more that we can see about Christ through him. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we're so grateful that we don't have to save ourselves, Lord. Um, For one, we would not be aware of the great price that needs to be paid, and we couldn't do that ourselves. We know now that we know what it is. So we thank you that you sent your son to pay that penalty for us, and we thank you for giving us these stories that we might read of how you operated with people in the past that might point us to the revelation of the work of your son that he did there on the cross to redeem us. May you be glorified. Always, Lord, help us to have our confidence for salvation fully in you, not in us, not in our faith, but in you, Jesus, the object of our faith. To you be all glory and praise. May your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.